Welcome to the High Performance Nursing Podcast, where we seek to coach, educate, and inspire nurses globally to achieve their high performance potential. Learn from influential clinicians having curious conversations to help you navigate your unique high performance nursing career path. Join me, your host, Liam Caswell, nursepreneur, coach, and mentor, as we explore how you can create a balanced, high performance nursing career. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to episode number six of the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, your host, Liam Caswell. And today we have an amazing guest with us, Nicola Browning. Hello, Nicola. How are you? Hi, Liam. I'm really good. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time. So Nicola is a registered nurse and worked in the UK between 1991 and 2004, working in critical care, neurosciences, traumatic and acquired brain injury rehabilitation, pediatrics, cardiothoracics, and working in a varied and diverse specialties within the public health and private hospital system. And then Nicola moved across to Australia, like many of us expats, and got a sponsorship at the Royal Perth Hospital, working as a clinical nurse in the WA State Head Injury Unit in 2004, arriving here with her husband, two daughters at the time, and two suitcases ready to embrace a sea change. I love that. (laughs) 17 years on, you now got three kids, a young adult, sorry, a dog, lovely home community, and lots of camping gear, surfboards, and living in WA and exploring to your heart's content. And you've developed this amazing career across the public private systems and uh, sectors. That is an amazing blurb. I'm so grateful <laughs> to have you here. I think collectively you've got over 30 years experience. Thank you um, for reminding me. No, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm excited for all the, the good little nuggets of gold that we talk about on the High Performance Podcast. Tell us why you started off in nursing back in 1991. Well, I think probably for me it started as, yeah, when I was a little girl. I think I would have only been around eight or nine and my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer and as a little girl walking into this huge big hospital and feeling very very frightened and very nervous and we were all close to our family so yeah just sitting at his bedside as a little girl watching on was very much an eye-opener and the nurses were lovely they used to talk to us as children and make us feel like things were okay and then he was eventually transferred home to be nursed and cared for at home till he passed away so I think that was my first real experience that I can remember of wow this big hospital this big buzzing place but people were kind and caring and for me I felt like they were going to make someone better Mm. so I think that's where the vocation really kind of stepped in I also I think as a child was a pretty sociable person I used to like make new friends and meet people and so yeah for me nursing was going to be something where I could just be myself I think and I naturally care and you know yeah, take care of people and my close family networks, you know, that I had, you know, great grandfathers and grandmothers. So being around a lot of elderly people as I grew up, that nurturing of kind of, you know, you were taught to to help them out, you know, if they needed a hand up or a cup of tea. And so it's just a natural part of my upbringing, I think. So that was really what, yeah, started that interest. And that stayed with me through school pretty much. That's amazing. I think we all have that like internal calling. Yeah. It's just like we have this yearning to help people. And even when we're in the midst of it and it might not be the best situation, we're still like, no, we're here and we've got this and we're here to help you. That's beautiful. 
Yeah, and I think it was the 70s and we had lots of dress-ups when we were children, so obviously had the great nurse dress-up as well. So I reckon that might have just planted a seed. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And the one thing that I love getting to learn more about you, Nicola, is, is your extensive experience across vast arrays of specialties and disciplines. Do you want to talk about your experience in the UK as a nurse and working throughout all of those different areas? Yeah, I, I mean, again, that's probably a personal experience. When I was in my teens and going through high school, my grandmother had a fall and sustained a head injury. And she became quite a young person in a nursing home at that time. So I think I just really needed to understand what had happened to her and you know why she needed this care and you know why couldn't she back be back home and so my curiosity was sparked with the whole neurosciences thing at that time so straight out of nursing specialized and went straight for the neurosurgical neuromedical ward and at that time we actually had children on that ward um, which you wouldn't necessarily choose to mix mm-hmm. nowadays <laughs> we also had ventilated patients within some high dependency base wow. um, on that ward so there was a great deal of experience and then we would also have some of our patients who were having radiotherapy so it's very diverse and you just wouldn't mix and see that mix of patients on one ward there were some great senior nurses who mentored me at that time and that had a really positive yeah effect on my career I think they wanted me to progress they wanted me to take charge of the ward they wanted you to grow I think Mm. and 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 yeah and specialize eventually Mm. so from that point that's where I did my postgraduate course in those days it was you know you did your ENB English National Board nursing course and I specialized in neuroscience so again just that curiosity of just tell me more I want to know everything and we also experienced quite a lot with organ donation and transplantation at that time because obviously we're at a point where there would be end-of-life care and decisions that needed to be made so that was my first experience of what those transplant coordinators roles look like so yeah, and dialysis machines and hemofiltration. So I think there was so much to learn. A course was just going to be the next way to mm. yeah know as much as I could. And mm. um, so I, I got lucky, applied and got my place quite soon. So specializing very early on in my career. Mm. That's awesome. And I think, you know, there's a common theme when, and, and I guess that's part of the idea of the podcast is that the themes will arise, but you know, you like Rachel from the second podcast that we did about critical care nursing, do you know that early investment of a mentorship guidance support in nurturing at the early stages of your career are so essential for your own professional development and growth and really set you on a path. But I think what's, what's interesting is that, and we'll get, we'll kind of get to this as we work through the conversation, but you have that, you know, passion for neurosciences and that experience in that area from the start of your career and that has gone through your whole career by the looks of it Um, but you've also you know played with different roles and looked at different areas I tell us a bit more about that yeah so I'm trying to remember all of the different pathways that I took and I think the other thing was I didn't just stay within one part of the UK so I moved to different teaching hospitals and that was for personal reasons as well as Mm. there were new opportunities so that's where I kind of took on the intensive care nursing so I went to a new hospital and I did my specialization in intensive care nursing at that point so again another course and another opportunity to grow and At that time, again, 
that became more a neuro. I still wanted to go back to neuro. So mm. I moved back to neuromedical, neurosurgical, because I wanted that management, that ward management experience. Mm. So I kind of progressed to that senior sort of staff nurse position at that time and loved intensive care. I think that's probably where I did had my most growth and by moving it was a challenge but I've got lifelong friends from those units and that time and I think I learned a great deal from the anaesthetists at that time and the medical profession and the nursing profession and the allied health we were all a cohesive team so it's really supportive everyone's bouncing off each other you're never alone and what was interesting is during that time the BBC filmed a documentary on the intensive care unit that mm. I was on I didn't get a moment of fame I think I was, I was the blur I was the blur behind the drip stand it was that kind of moment but luckily they filmed my patient who was a young man who'd had a, a traumatic head injury after he came off a motorbike and we, they did film him and I leaving the unit mm. Oh, successfully yeah. at the end so that that was a highlight and that's where I started to see media and there was a lot mm. more documentaries on hospitals and mm. healthcare and nurses at that time and I could see the positive in that people were really seeing what we did each day so yeah and we were learning about other things outside of the health system yeah, so well. so yeah I think I pretty much followed a path of nursing and clinical during that time and then once I came to Australia, that took a completely different turn. So I went from all the clinical spaces to non-clinical. So that was an interesting transition. And probably the trigger for that or, you know, the, the change was because I had a family then. So I moved with the, the children and I needed some flexibility. I had no family here in Australia. So really even getting a chance to understand um, the health system. Mm -hmm. I'd had my first clinical role at the State Head Injury Unit, worked with some amazing people, but it was a very old <laughs> rehab unit mm -hmm. which no longer exists they've built the new hospital now and we even had the last surviving polio patient on our ward on on our shift so again historical type mm -hmm. uh, yeah stories to learn from that patient that I nursed so then I took a break had some time off and have my third child and moved then at that point from clinical and someone talked to me that I met at like a mum's group about the fact that they worked in project work at the Department of Health. So she said, what about you having a little bit of a, a go and seeing if there's some roles out there? Because you've done so much, why don't you think about mm. it? And I thought, well, I could explore it. And she said, you can work a bit at home and you can work in the office. So that was when I took on my first um, project role. And it was the transferable skills, I think, were about the fact that you'd got acute experience I think for the project that I took on, which was with organ donation, organ donation and tissue transplantation, and it was coordinating a report on all the different services in Western Australia. I think most of that was that you could use your clinical experience and you'd related to, you know, how you cared for those patients when they were going through those processes and how you work with the families, how you gain consent, you know, what did it look like, you know, when you're talking to people about whether they were, you know, they would consider organ donation at that time. So as a cute nurse, that's something that we were used to, to doing, sadly, each day, but there's a lot of hopeful to those stories. Mm. So that was the change. And I took on those project roles. Yeah. And yeah, 
I'd love uh, to I think talk because about you're this. working with lots of people, lots of people mm, who mm. supported you with that. It wasn't just you doing it, but because mm. we're communicators, we're listeners, we're facilitators as nurses, you were able to bring together a lot of people in a room for a project and you would be facilitating a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation, and actually bringing all this information together to put into one report with a number of recommendations. Yep. And you didn't have to know everything. They, they were the experts, but you needed to be able to talk to people, <laughs> meet people from yeah. all disciplines, researchers. Yeah. And it was kindly thanks to a very, very nice medical director at the time who said, you've got this. And I think him having the confidence and the executive director saying, why do you think you can't do this? You'll be fine. So their confidence in me meant that I took the plunge and I went, okay, you know, and we got to that end point with the project so it was a very rewarding experience and I met a lot of amazing clinicians and researchers and medical directors at that time and got to know more about a lot of organizations that I didn't know about before in Western Australia. That's amazing. Oh, I absolutely love that. There's so much there that I want to ask you about. <laughs> if only my memory was better to remember it all. But I would love to first, first of all touch on the, the, the comment about MDT practice within an intensive care unit. Because I think yeah. that that in itself is something that I feel like every nurse needs to experience. Now, we do have MDT yeah. working in every environment. But I feel like what you talked about in the ICU whereby you have an anaesthetist, you have the consultant, and every day you are a central point of information and sharing, yeah. and you're autonomous, yeah. uh, and you're an advocate, and you're empowered to be a high-level, high-performance nurse, ultimately, because you are the eyes and the ears of the team. But at the same time, you can't make the decisions without the physio and without the social worker and the psychologist. So I love that you brought that up because it just took me back to ICU and remembering <laughs> every morning walking into the eight o'clock meeting and sitting down with the team and feeling so valued as a clinician. Yeah. yeah. And, and feeling I think empowered to talk up and, and advocate on behalf of yeah. the most vulnerable patients in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're telling the story you know the whole story you're giving someone the whole picture you will have seen everybody you will have seen every family member you will have met every professional that's providing some form of treatment or care and you piece this whole jigsaw puzzle together mm. and then you have the most current information that is so valuable and then someone somewhere pulls that together and you've got your plan and you know where you're going to go next and mm. ultimately if we don't have that and we can't communicate and we don't listen to each other we won't have the positive outcomes for our patients and it's all about recovery and yeah. everything we do at that time. If we don't all do it well together, there will not be the outcome that we all hope for. So, yeah. And yeah. I think that's where we have, ICU is challenging because the outcomes are variable, of course, depending on why you're there. But the, that's why I think we have better patient outcomes in an intensive care environment versus like a medical ward whereby you've got a higher ratio. Maybe your skill mix isn't as great. Maybe you don't have a consistent team like you would in the ICU, yeah. for example. So I can see why people are drawn and why I was drawn to work in the yeah. ICU because as a nurse, I wanted to feel what it would feel like to look after someone one-on-one -on -one for 12 hours and give yeah. them my all and walk away at the end of the day and just be so proud of what I've done. And also knowing, going to bed at night and sleeping and knowing that I'd given them the best care possible. Like it's Absolutely. so cool, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, there's something that makes you feel complete about that process. Mm. And as soon as you hand over to the next person, you do walk away. You take you take something with you, yeah. but you walk away knowing they're in good hands when you walk away. Mm. It's the whole team. Yeah, it, it was the best, I think, opportunity to really understand everything about team and everyone really and lots of debriefing mm. after really stressful and difficult, you know, incidents. And yeah, and I think debriefing goes back to my time when I was working in the Sheffield area and we were student nurses. I didn't know what debriefing was through my training or the need for it and why, but we had the Hillsborough disaster at the time when mm. I was a student. And so the aftermath of, you know, what happened for our entire workforce at that time and what they saw, you know, we, there was a lot of debriefing in the different places we went to and we were students at that time. So I realized then what burnout what stress looked mm. like, you know, the emotional challenges of really major events that can hit hospitals. Mm. So, yeah, and here is COVID and oh, people no. are experiencing now the same. And I think, it, yeah. I think it teaches us a lot, but I think it also, you know, I talk about most days in, in my nursing practice, I talk about the, the benefits of having really good systems and processes, frameworks, initiatives, you know, support networks, in place to be able to navigate through difficult times because ultimately you know nursing is very varied and challenging in a positive and a negative way at times there's pros and cons but i always come back to you know teaching a a, a skill like basic life support for example yeah. you know i always come back to the point of why do you think we have an algorithm? Why do you think <laughs> we need to have this process in place? Because we know that when we're under a lot of stress and we're, we're not at our best potentially because we've got so much happening and we're cognitively overloaded and we're trying to balance 50 things at once, that we need a structure to help us get through that because we're going to revert to our baseline knowledge and it's going to come back to that fundamental training that we've had at some point. And I think that that kind of stuff needs to be brought into self-care mindfulness burnout like there almost needs to be a predetermined algorithm of some sort or framework that you can work through that each organization is invested in and adapted so that we can we can go down that route and give people a pathway to coming back yeah. from that stuff because you're right debriefing is so important reflection is vitally important all areas of healthcare, and we and don't I give it enough attention yeah, and I think that's possibly the benefits of, and maybe what did lead me into some of the non-clinical roles that, you know, I did have an interest in being in a working group when we were kind of looking at um, writing a transplant policy. So that was one of the other things that I took on as a project. And I've still got a copy of it and it was an honor typewriter. <laughs> So that makes me feel like I really am coming from the historical archives. You know, when you look back and go, oh, what was the first policy I'd ever written? And when was it? It was about organ transplantation mm. at that time from an ICU. And then I became a policy officer. And that was another project where I moved into a non-clinical role. And that really helped me because I was an overseas nurse who'd not really worked within, you know, systems where I really understood everything about the tiers of clinical governance, risk, safety, quality. So it really was a learning, a steep learning curve in that environment, you know, looking at policy systems and, you know, updating, coordinating with different services. So mm. that was my first, again, probably a bit of baptism by fire, because um, it was something new and understanding quality standards was something that was, yeah, at, at that core 
it was um, a lot, a lot to mm. take on board. So it was a good experience. And then mm. I think that's why people have said, oh, well, you've done policy and do you want to come and do clinical governance? And mm. I've taken different projects on in aged care and disability sectors mm. because I've diversified into other roles. So mm. that was an interesting time as well. Yeah. Um, I think there's and, a great lesson there for people that are listening <laughs> and for <laughs> myself because I'm reflecting <laughs> as we speak. Do you know that what you talk when you talked about you, your time in the, the organ transplantation role and, and donation yeah. role, do you know that is such a important area of health. And you know, I think it's beginning to get more attention, and people are, you know, it's becoming a thing. Because I, when I was training, I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't know that yeah. that was a, a potential pathway as a career, but also yes. sort of service almost. And maybe that's naive, but. I think that was such an important work that's happening in that space. But I wanted to pick up on the fact that all of your transferable skills up until that point, you had everything you needed to succeed in that role. But it's so funny because as nurses, we think, well, you know, if we're not by the bedside, what have I got to offer? Clearly, yeah. so much, so, so much, because we thought <laughs> we pull everything together. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it is a coordination and it's a lot of multitasking skills. I know people talk about that not always being a good thing to multitask, but when it's in a productive and efficient mm. and safe manner, it's fine. So I think, yeah, when, you, when you're coordinating projects, you know, you are having to pull together a lot of things. You have to work with a lot of key stakeholders mm. um, and engage those people. So you have to build relationships, trust. It's the same thing yeah. um, to get the outcome that you're needing and you need to get people to work together. So so I think bringing yourself, the more human we can be, and I, I don't get me wrong, I had imposter syndrome sitting in all of those rooms thinking, why am I here? And, you know, what have I got to bring? And But people, when they were welcoming, were welcoming, and mm. they were there to support the process because it was something they believed in as well. Mm. So I think if you can get people on board, collaboration is what it's all about. Then, then people will work together. And, mm. and I think most of the time we're all thinking of the families, the patient, and what we're there for, and your cause and your purpose. Um, mm. And I mean, definitely, if anyone's listening and they're interested in the organ donation, I mean, Donate Life, we're here. They were one of the organizations that I work for. But looking up um, anything on organ donation and transplantation, whether you're working you know, with the families who are making the decision to donate or you're working with recipients, I mean, that's an mm. incredible area to work and so rewarding and and families very often get a lot you know through that process with the, with great support from great great clinicians yeah that's amazing I, I just got goosebumps because it, it is amazing <laughs> work that happens in that space and I have been a you know the ICU nurse at the bedside when that stuff has happened and yeah and we've had to have those conversations and it's that is hard you know those conversations are hard it but, is. but it's it's, it's, it's supporting them through that and working with the Donate Life nurses who are just sensational in, in the work that they yeah. do and raising yeah. the profile of that as an option for yeah. people as well. Having um, the conversation. And, yeah. and it's interesting, that phrase, having a conversation, I haven't thought about it till now, but it's the same as when I was working in youth mental health and destigmatizing mental health. It's all about having a conversation. So mm -hmm. yeah, I guess, I guess I've been doing that for a long time in different places, but not realized it till now. It was all just having a conversation. Yeah. And as nurses and as human beings and compassionate, empathetic people, we, we can put ourselves in a very comfortable place just to have a conversation. And when people trust you, those conversations aren't difficult. 
No, no. And I guess that probably feeds into, I'd love to go back to imposter syndrome because, uh, <laughs> you know, people, yeah, I think, well, I know, I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome. And, you know, I think people often think that if you put yourself out there and you do something like a podcast or, you know, you, you go for roles and you continue to grow in your career, that you couldn't possibly have that. So what would you say, how would you navigate imposter syndrome how would you give some advice to people that are like oh my god I feel like I don't belong here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've got the best <laughs> advice but I, I do it anyway I think I've heard people yes, that's I've, I've been advice. doing a leadership I've been doing a leadership course with a lovely gentleman called Mike House and it's called Unshakable and he's written a book and I, again I so wish I'd had this book and this learning ages ago because I, I think it, it is about the mindsets and he talks about you know when we talked about imposter syndrome only sort of a week or two ago and I think I have been doing it anyway and I would say fear is is probably good because you know it, it makes us feel alive and you go well you know why not give it a go what's the worst that can happen mm. the worst that can happen is maybe it's not for me and it wasn't the right the right role and you know there's lots of other opportunities out there but it's better to give it a go and you know within at least three months of any roles I think I've moved around so often there's kind of a there's like stages to it and you would know Liam moving jobs <laughs> those first three months are like oh what have I done and you're building your confidence and then the next three months that gets you to that six month you're like oh okay I'm kind of I get this I understand as much as I can about the organization or the work that I'm doing or my roles and my responsibilities you know and, and you've got to kind of you've probably made even mistakes and that's mm -hmm. okay as well we learn from mistakes or you've mm -hmm. asked someone because you've really not known I think I've always asked lots of questions. So imposter syndrome is maybe just something that comes as you have experiences, you know, you move and shake a little in your career, but it's well worth doing. And I think don't, don't doubt yourself. If you ask and you're not taking risks and you keep your patience safe or, you know, you, you haven't got a, an ego that's driving you, then I think if you've got a humble approach to things, people welcome questions and then when you do know and you've got something you'll thrive and you'll energize a room because, you know with your passion and your dedication yeah. to something i think someone did once say to me how can you make policy so interesting how do you get so excited about it and i was like it's just working with you every day because if you can teach someone something you know that they find is helpful or you know you're working together on a project then you know, the outcome is still great because you're collaborating, you're going to make a change, that's going to make a difference. And then you're going to provide the quality service or care, you know, because you're all doing great things. So... I love that. I love that. And I'll, you know, there's a lesson there for everybody, you know, imposter syndrome, it does affect us all. And that those transition shock moments that you talk about, you know, starting a new <laughs> role, the three months of like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I don't know. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're in that space where you're like, holy moly, I really don't know what I should know, but I've got to work towards it. And you can have on that steep incline. Yeah. You know, we all go through that. And I think it's, maybe that's not spoken about enough. And in my experience, certainly, I don't feel like people talk to you openly about that. And it's a real thing, uh, especially yeah. for our new grads, you know, coming into the workforce, you're yeah. coming in and you're like, oh my God, I've got three years of a degree. I'm <laughs> ready to hit the ground running. And then all of a sudden you're like, what, I can't do the 50 things that I need to do today because I haven't done the internal competency. Oh my yeah. goodness. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and that's okay. 
think you'll often it's it's how you look at other people i've i've looked at and admire some very very strong leaders who've actually given me some great opportunities to to grow as well and it's not always been smooth sailing mm. but i look back on it all positively i don't look back and go uh, there's no point in looking back and saying oh well, i should have done this or what did that person really think of me and i have done that a lot mm. in a lot of settings when there's been strong characters around but what I've learned from those stronger people may have been something, I've learned something about myself that I needed mm. to work on. But I've also learned something about the good stuff that they do. And then when people have, have questioned me about, you know, why do you think you've not got this? Then that's a good question, you know, mm. for someone who's working with you or alongside you or, or a manager or a leader, you know, that you've got a lot of respect for when they question it with you. It's a good conversation to have. And I think that's a good part to things like professional development and clinical supervision. It's your time to ask, and then that will alleviate maybe the imposter syndrome feelings mm -hmm. because you've got a private, safe, secure place mm -hmm. that you can ask those questions of someone who might see something totally different in you that you don't see in yourself. Mm. And I think that's so important to get that feedback. And uh, yeah. I know myself, for myself, you know, my growth has been in, you know finding a coach a mentor and i'm really really passionate and i know you are passionate yeah. about succession planning and yeah. creating that safe space one of my main passions is psychological safety yeah. and making sure that people come into work and they can do their work they can ask they can challenge they can be curious and feel safe to do so and the minute yeah. that someone feels fearful to to ask a question as a leader or to ask the team leader a question that they're not sure about and yeah. they don't feel safe to do that, there's a whole yeah. cascade of events that are going to happen after that. And we can't afford yeah. for that to happen in healthcare. No, I agree. And I think no one should be ridiculed. And I've been, I've had experiences of those, you know, not so good behaviors and that some of those things stay with you. But what I'll always say that I've taken from those is I know the sort of leader I don't want to be, or I know the kind of manager I don't want to be. And I know the kind of person that I do want to be. Mm. So that's how you take the positive twist on it. And you say, we learn from good and bad behaviors and we love from good, we learn from good modeling and best practice it's all about best practice so always align yourself and and find those people in your whether it's clinical or non-clinical spaces that you think yeah that that's someone i'd really you know like to be you know as i progress through my career and and i can think of many people over the years that have influenced me in different settings or they've taught me so much all completely different completely different backgrounds and as well moving and transferring into a corporate world and in business improvement units and continuous improvement units that was a space that i'd never been in but again with the right people and teaching you and having confidence in you you can grow and learn and and it's as simple as that so i think i would say it, imposter syndrome yes it will be there i don't think i've got the right answer for anybody other than trust yourself and be curious and you know just do it anyway yes. do it anyway yes 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 are you listening yeah just do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and i'll listen to that advice when next week i'm thinking <laughs> <When you're>, now <laughs> i'll need to leave it's yeah it yeah. is amazing we're our own worst enemies you know we we hold ourselves back and and i love yeah. that's why i love doing what i do because i work with people and you're right sometimes it's just that question you know well who mm. is holding you back why can't you yeah, do this? Yeah. 
What's stopping and, you? And it's asking, asking other people about their positive experiences, but also some of the experiences that they think really shape them as a professional or as a person. And, and I can think of so many different experiences. And it's that's what reflective practice is for. You mm. know, be reflective and, and find someone that you really trust. It doesn't even have to be in the workplace. Sometimes it's so much better outside. Networking is good, which I love networking, yeah. as you know, because it's just meeting different people with different thinking and they they come from different sectors and you can learn a lot, particularly in the business world. I've met a lot of great mm. people who, mm. you know, have, have definitely taught me something by sharing their wisdom or their experiences. And then you, yeah, you know what that looks like when you go back into the health space or, you know, whether you're nursing or mm. in a non-clinical environment, you can relate to, you know, what does strategy look like? What does operations, you know, mm. management look like? Yeah. Those roles are very diverse and ops management is a, that's a full on role to take on, but I've mm. watched some incredible people do it really, really well. So yeah. you, you think, can, you can yeah. learn a lot by watching yeah. and listening. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just so many opportunities out there, you know, that's one of the things that drew me to career in nursing initially was just the world your oyster. And, and for me, a big aha moment was when I did my masters of healthcare and leadership in management yeah. and it just all fell into place. And I just went, wow. Like, of course there was a strategy. Of course there was leadership theory and principles, but you know, we don't get taught that stuff. And then I'm looking at that yeah. and I'm going, okay. And I've worked some, with some really awesome non-clinical managers that have been my direct line manager. And I've just been kind of blown away almost by their approach, their leadership, the strategy. And it got me questioning things like, do we need a nurse to lead a ward? You know, do you yeah. need a nurse unit manager or can you have someone that is, you know, going to respect the clinicians and, and work well with the team, but have that business strategic mindset. Yeah. Because as a manager, you're managing a budget of a couple of million dollars, 50 staff, professional development, patient experience, clinical governance and risk. If you, yeah. if you haven't been exposed to that training, that is a baptism of fire. And we yeah, see time I, and time again, you know, fall, fall down that kind of dark hole of, like how do you manage this how, how does this work yeah and I think bringing teams together no matter what your experience and and that's something I've probably learned more in the community sector and in the community space more than the hospital I met a great deal of people that we would all sit around the table and whether that was you know finance you know HR recruitment you know that there's so many different people that sit in the room you know because uh, you 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 will teach them and they will teach you because mm. they need to learn about the business from the clinical sense and then there's lots that when you become a manager and you've got budgets and you know you're trying to learn other skills that might not be your passion but it's necessary for the roles and responsibilities you have that there's a lot of people that can give you the tools and the knowledge and the understanding to do your job really well mm. but vice versa and yeah I think there's a lot of organizations that have, and as I've worked with marketing teams, you know, and fundraising teams, and there's some really interesting things to learn in that space. And also now having worked in a couple of organizations that have had things like care reference group, youth programs, and working with parents and young people and their lived experience to make the service and, and our offering right you know, and that co-design space, which I know we we're going to touch mm. on. So I, th I think we can learn so much from 
everyone in every department, but it can sometimes take a while to all get on the same page, but mm. collaboration and coming together and having a seat at the table. I talk about that quite often with different friends who are in different sectors or different spaces. It, as long as you've all got representation to have those good conversations, then um, yeah, it's, it's a, a good seat at the table. Mm, definitely. Yeah. No, we need to continue to lift the profession and you know, advocate on behalf of the amazing work that we're doing and continue to do as we move into the future. You um, talked about youth mental health and I know that that's a really yeah. big passion of yours. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your work in that space? Yeah, I went into that space about three years ago. And I think my, my interest to go into that space was because I was raising teenage children myself. And I think, you know, you're exposed to understanding a lot more what they're going through. And growing up in this world now is, um, yeah, not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so seeing a great deal more discussion around mental health and having friends and colleagues that I've worked with whose children are struggling and young people are struggling. Mm. So started my interest and started reading a bit more around some of those topics. And then someone I worked with then had sort of said there were these opportunities to go and work within youth mental health. And I thought, okay, so I took the plunge and I, I did go back into kind of a governance and project space, even though I was thinking, no, I'll go back to clinical, but I, I did take the plunge and, and it was a really, really important time. I learned so much from the young people that we met. I learned so much from the health professionals, the youth counsellors, the psychologists, and, you know, everyone through from CEO and all the different, you know, levels of operations management, chief operations officer, it didn't matter what role anyone had everyone usually had when you spoke to them a connection to you know the purpose of the organization and um, there was probably a great deal of people who've gone into those professions because of their lived experience and they wanted to make a difference so yeah it, it was a really good experience and I think that time was really also valuable in a way I hadn't realized because then when you go to community sort of settings like my kids were at sports clubs they were you know doing all sorts of activities and you sit by the sideline of a netball court or a footy pitch and you know you start having conversations with parents and when you're a nurse people which you might know the same Liam (laughs) people tend to share whether you're on a bus at a bus stop wherever you are people will chat to you and we like to chat to people Mm. nurses usually so I think you know when you're always listening and you can kind of see through some of the conversation and what where we might be going with a conversation it's very often someone's trusting you to say my kid's not doing so well or they know a friend so it was lovely and I I talked about this at work it was Mm. lovely to be able to say well these are the organizations this is where you can find help you're breaking the stigma of you know some of these conversations around mental health wherever you are in your mm. workplace and you know we I've, I've had that you know as a health professional I've known people who have struggled and mm. you know so I think yeah it's been positive because it's not just about the work you do when you go to work it's actually about how we can actually yeah help people mm. in our everyday life as well so yeah some yeah. some great experience and that was my first experience of talking to others who shared their lived experience they shared their story to make sure other people knew where to find help if mm. they needed it and then they had people they could relate to so that 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 was a very and the first experience of co-designing services mm. with some people so 
very, very interesting. And Headspace and, you know, the organisation Youth Focus that I work with, they're still doing incredible work, even though I've moved on from there. But it's lovely to know you can give someone a number and say to a parent, give them a call. And sometimes that makes all the difference. I think, you know, that work is so invaluable. The fact that we are facing this mental health pandemic, you know, across yes. the, 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 you know, the lifespan, especially with COVID, yeah. not detracting from youth mental health at all. You know, kids growing up nowadays, are, I often reflect on the fact that, you know, we had it really quite easy, didn't we? When we, you know, <laughs> we didn't have all the phones and no one could catch you no. on the TikTok and what. <laughs> whatever else Do you know it's just there's just so many pressures and and yeah. so much for them to experience and yeah. and I think unless you talk to a health professional a lot of families uh, and that this is every um point of healthcare. Mm. they don't actually know where to start I mean we do start with a GP and I would say GP is just you know that's always a really great place to start but that would be with any health issue don't ignore a health issue you know go and have a conversation it, it's mm. that kind of first starting point but until sometimes you know you've got the confidence to go oh is that actually where i go or is there somewhere else that i call not everybody knows that these services are out there for help and that's the same with our profession as well you know we're seeing high rates of stress burnout and it's nurses knowing where where are those supports you know there's mm. the nursing and midwifery support line you know yeah. knowing that those things are there but I moved from overseas and I didn't actually know about some of those services, whether they existed then, I'm not sure. Mm. But so, yeah, I'm always keen to make sure, you know, that I share that information if I know yeah. that there's help out there. Mm. And definitely checking in with yourself, you know, as, a, as yeah. a nurse, checking in with yourself. And if you're feeling out of sync and off kilter, yeah. as we might say in Scotland, you're not feeling <laughs> like yourself, you know, you need to have that little chat with yourself, your loved one, and, and try and unpack that and 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 maybe it's a nursing midwifery support line maybe it's your yeah. eap yeah maybe it's your manager if you've got a great trust and uh, rapport with them or maybe you need to seek some you know help support counseling guidance one of the best things i've ever done is yeah. seek psychology support and i'm not you know afraid to talk about that so i think no. that it's i think it's we see so much as nurses and like you say, we all come into it because of lived experience nine times out of yeah. ten. Yeah. And we we have got some kind of baggage, I guess, for lack of a better word, but we bring stuff with us that we want to we want to change and influence yeah. other people's uh, experiences and journeys in a positive way, yeah. so that they don't have to go through what we've maybe gone yeah. through. And I think it is, there's that conversation, who's caring for the caring profession? Yeah, yeah. Because we, no one thinks that we're superhuman and that we mm. can, you know, keep going. But I think we, we're not always sure how to take a break. I know I've, I've definitely been through that, but that period of time where you just keep going and keep going and keep going. And a lot of people can't take a break. So, you know, your commitment to your work is, and your, is your livelihood and it's your income and it's the roof over your head. But I think even still, you know, there are people who want to help and they want you to come back to work well if you've taken a break. So it's also yes. about if you take the break, how do you come back? But there, there are there are a great deal of support services out there for young people and for people mm -hmm. of all ages. Mm. So it's always knowing, yeah, re reach out always. And yeah, asking someone if, are you okay, is, is absolutely the right thing to do. Yes. And if yeah. they're not, just knowing that you can say, well, you know, 
and, and share an experience you've had. Mm. I think that's always important. You don't have to share people's details to say, well, I was actually talking to a friend the other week and it was, you know, uh, this person of that age or, you know, they found this really helpful and it's giving people hope as well mm. to say, you know, and, and th there's good things at, at the other end, you know, but yeah. you just need this support right now. Mm. And it's funny because we do that every day, don't we? With we our do. patients, we do that every day. We acknowledge that someone is maybe just off today and, you know, they've had a rough night or yeah. they're missing their loved one and they've been in hospital for four months. Yeah. And we do it every day. But sometimes I love how Elena talks about this. We do offer yeah. that help and love to each other or ourselves. Yeah. So I think that that's, it's so great that there's so many people in this space now really promoting it and we just need to get it into undergraduate nursing and yeah. through the hospitals so that we can have better patient outcomes better staff outcomes staff well-being yeah. better retention you know we don't need to create a business case for this because it's so obvious it, it is <laughs> obvious and i think it's also we're all you know a mother a son a brother a mm. sister you know we've got children we've all got a life outside of work. And so what we see every day, whether that be, you know, someone's come in and had a new diagnosis, someone's not well, someone's, you know, having end of life care. It is, it can be our families. Mm. <laughs> it can be our loved ones. It can be our yeah. friends and life can change in an instant. Mm. And, you know, just because we are a health professional doesn't mean to say that we can leave that at the door, but we need the support around us to make sure we can navigate that when we do come to work. So yeah, I think those supports are really important. But trust, I think you need to know that you have got someone you trust that you can share that with. Mm. And they've got you. I think it's mm. just knowing someone's got you, mm. whatever that looks like. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to talk about lived experience because I know that that's something you're really passionate about. And you know, the way that healthcare is moving with your quality safety clinical governance experience, I'm sure you'll speak to this, but yeah. patient safety consumer experience is a huge part of how we shape healthcare delivery nowadays. And it really is at the forefront of every decision that we make. And we collect data on it, we report on it, we try and improve our systems, we invite them to uh, consumer meetings where yeah. they can advocate on behalf of patients or again, use their lived experience. So tell yeah. us a little bit about your work in that space. So as we talked about, I was a neurosciences specialised nurse. So that was 33 years ago. And I'd already had experience of my grandmother having a brain injury. And my mother-in-law passed away. She'd had a stroke. So a lot of sort of stroke and neuro experience had touched our life. And then about 18 months ago, my eldest daughter, who is also a student nurse, um, and she was in her first year of nursing, um, she actually had a stroke. So our life changed in an instant. She'd gone upstairs, she was studying for an exam, ready for bed. And then she knocked on our door and came back inside and, and said to us, and she was just using her hands and she tried to speak and her speech had gone she couldn't actually talk and the look of terror in her eyes of what is happening I don't know what's happening so again the, the blessing of being a nurse is we knew in that scenario we do the fast assessment which mm. is face arms you know speech time so we knew we needed to act so we rang the hospital and she was taken into hospital and obviously they knew there was something really not quite right as a young fit healthy person so she went into hospital and we started to learn what it's like to be on the other side you know as a as a consumer and she was taken in and we didn't know what the cause was for at least sort of 24 hours or more 
um, went to the Neuro Award. And I think there's, there's two things here really that I think I noticed straight away was that how good is it that I'm a nurse and I can advocate and I can ask at every point that we need information and go and get it because mm. it wasn't always forthcoming. And then once we got to the ward, she looked fine. She was walking. She was well. Yes, her speech wasn't there, but they didn't know what was underlying at that time. So she was on a ward with very high dependency, bedbound patients, a lot of elderly patients. I think there was only one other young person on the ward at the time. And we noticed quite quickly that kind of left for a while and you had to seek information and so uh, it, it was an interesting view from the other side the good thing for Beth was they actually found um, that she'd um, got a hole in her heart that had never closed we'd not known about it the whole time that she'd been growing up so they did some procedures and said we'll bring you back to hospital some little clots just got through that hole and gone to the brain and you've had a small bleed and her speech did return within probably about 24 hours mm -hmm. and she was walking and well which was a great outcome and then after about 10 days she didn't have the surgery for the closure of the heart at that time we were discharged home but what happened at that time is we were literally given a pack from the stroke foundation and we were sent home there was no other support other than come back and have an ot assessment to be sure we don't think following the ot and physio and everything all the assessments that you had on ward that there was any long lasting effects um, or deficits so we went home there wasn't any counseling there wasn't any question about psychological support and there wasn't too much checking in on how she was doing it was a very medicalized model and once they knew where the two problems were there was the neuro opinion there was a cardiac opinion she got a family that cared for her so it was good for her to go home which is is all a positive for us but then I think probably once we got home once she'd been through all the assessments and we knew that there was no deficits it was a period of time that was a little bit strange well what next mm. <laughs> and just because we're nurses and just because you know I'd worked in that field you know I'm her mum and my husband's her dad and she's mm. got a brother and sister but we realized that actually the teens there probably weren't used to knowing what does a young person need what does their life look like after stroke and they were exceptionally busy they were probably very understaffed the skill mixes were probably a challenge and we did reassure them quite often no we've got this you know we're good and we asked the questions mm -hmm. we needed to but i think we realized it could be better and most of the resources she were given, she was given at the time, really she couldn't relate to. She's like, well, this is for an old person, mm -hmm. you know, this it's got old people pictures, you know. Yeah. And and we were nurses kind of analyzing it a little bit, going, Oh, okay. So we went home and then that's how we knew about the Stroke Foundation. And Beth decided that they had a fundraising element. Let's turn this negative, she said, into a positive. So she wanted to run a fundraising event mm. while she was waiting for a heart surgery <laughs> and while she was getting back to uni. So yeah, sure, mum and dad, yeah, no, we'd really, no, we'll do this. And we were really connected to the cause and we wanted to make a difference. So we had lots of lovely friends and community, everyone wanted to do something. So that's the positive. We, we did some fundraising. I met the state manager of the Stroke Foundation um, here in WA who was an amazing lifeline for us and a real support. Mm. And we met some other people who were young stroke survivors that she connected sort of Beth and ourselves with. And, and it helped. It helped to kind of go, okay, it's not just me. There are other people out there who've been through similar things, but she still hadn't met anyone who was a student or young at, at that time. It was a child or someone in their 30s or 40s. 
So this is a long story, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I think then once we'd sort of done the fundraising, Beth actually had her heart closure of the whole, which was a very straightforward at Royal Perth Hospital, mm -hmm. who originally sponsored mm -hmm. me. So I'm very grateful to That's them for amazing. many reasons. And mm -hmm. she had some fantastic nurses and who were all great. And, you know, the, the same as the neuro nurses were mm -hmm. all lovely. They were very kind. But the time that they had to be with you and support you was restricted and that was no you know no, no fault of their own it's hard to do everything mm. and then after that time she went back to uni and carried on but the challenges that she's left with are very hidden so fatigue and when I say fatigue it's not just being a bit tired it's emotionally and physically exhausted that you know Liam because this is your world mm. so the longer term sort of challenges for her is that it's adjusting to a, a new way of, of living her life that might just look a little bit different if mm. she's challenged day to day. But she's continued and she's now in her grad final year and looking for her grad programs and is a huge stroke ambassador and advocate for the Stroke Foundation. So that's led us to this year. And Beth sort of said, hey, mum, look, you and I could go on to this working group and the Young Stroke Project. They're looking for people. Do you want to do it together? Mm. So, of course, we said yes. And volunteering something we've raised our like kids to embrace, whether we've been at surf club on the beaches. Um, mm. So that, that's what we've been doing over the last 18 months. The Stroke Foundation were given some funding through the NDIS to do a three-year project to really look at what is happening with young stroke out there. Where are the gaps in services? Where are the resources? How do we need to change that? So we've been involved on a few sort of interviews the working group are working on different topics each year so last year was all recovery and I think this year we're going to be looking at emotions so that mental health space mm. will obviously come into that and by sharing which obviously Beth has wanted to do her lived experience and have a voice she wants to make a difference for other people and being a nurse now and knowing what it feels like on the other side mm. and being a patient I think it's been yeah something that she says is valuable and it's turned something that seemed very negative and you know obviously why on earth is this happening into an experience that I think will make her the nurse that she's going to be and that's something she feels and we can see watching her but her confidence to share her lived experience and help on a co-design project is yeah something she's really helped me embrace and said no we're going to do this together you know I'm like no you sure you don't want it just to be your world it's about you it's not about me being the parent but she said no we're both nurses we've got so much we can contribute so I think she's inspired me a great deal over the last 18 months to say whether you're nursing clinically whether you're working we can make a difference in so many different ways in our community so that's where I think lived experience comes into it and I've listened to a lot of people in different sectors and lived experience is spoken about everywhere now mm. I think which makes it feel a little bit more comfortable to be vulnerable we're very private people and a private family normally so this was a, a different space and we're not people that necessarily talk about ourselves you know we're we're caring we want to know about other people and can I help you so mm. it, it does feel really positive and we've met a lot of young stroke people all around Australia doing this and learned a lot from them through their experiences that have been very different and it's a very diverse group of people from completely different communities so yeah the project team are absolutely fantastic and it has been a really helpful process in this kind of 
recovery time, really. Mm. What an amazing, thank you so much for sharing that because I'm sure that that's not overly easy to share. <laughs> you know, Beth sounds like un, such an inspiration um, <laughs> and you must be extremely proud of her for what yes. she's gone through and where she's at and, and you know, being able to reframe that whole experience and, and use mm. it in a positive light to not only, you know, help herself recover, but yourself recover and the family work through that, but also you know give back to others to make yeah. sure that, that 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 support was available to them that is just amazing yeah there's a great deal coming out of it and i think a lot of the common conversation is that peer support space um you know it doesn't mean to say it has to be a long term and it can be in a formal you know whatever that mm. program might look like peer support is hugely valuable in so many sectors like we know and it's certainly there's some incredible frameworks for it which sit within mental health and other areas of health so i think you know there, there's possibly you know something that's going to come from all of this that will mean young people like Beth can find another young person like Beth to just share you know and understand what this might look like what does recovery look like mm. and you know giving a hopeful space but to someone maybe that understands what your journey has been like because yeah. it, it is different for people of all ages and different stages in life so and I think I think there's so much to be gained from a clinician perspective yeah. listening to lived experience stories, you know, and listening yeah. to patients who have gone through uh, certain situations that maybe we come across every day. And, and just you telling that story just made me reflect on how it, very often we will be like, oh, do you know, bed 40, John in bed 40. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his, his wife's a nurse. So, you know, it's probably going to be great. Like he's going to go home and everything's going to be fine. And <laughs> And we do blur the lines and that's a really important learning for us and for me to take away from this tonight is that you do have other roles. There, yeah. and of course we know that, but in the moment we, we get caught up in that and that has potentially long, long lasting impacts and, and not everybody will feel comfortable in that situation to say, well, actually I'm not okay with taking my husband home to do yeah. his personal care. That's right. Like why would yeah. we even assume that that was okay? Yeah. And I think that it took me back to, I remember working, well, I, I cared for this young man for a very long time who had quite a catastrophic head injury. And I remember some of those conversations where we would sit in the room and would it be what he actually wanted? And was it what dad actually wanted? And it might be what we all thought was, you know, the, the obvious solution, but it was really important to understand what was that young person? What was their wishes? And what do they actually want? And what are their relationships before? to know what does that look like afterwards but also I mean you know Beth's an independent young woman and you know for her it was very much you know we want to keep our relationship really positive and you know she won't want me to know everything and there'll be questions she wants to ask where I'm not here and so I'd always check in with her and say do you want me to go or is anything you know so it but not not everyone you, you can never assume you've yeah. always got to ask you know and, and actually always have time with your patient when families aren't there to mm. really dig deep because I think that's where you find out and it's usually on a night shift 
yeah. I remember that was the time where you'd really get time to mm -hmm. someone's always awake and mm -hmm. it's usually for a reason there's something on their mind so I think yeah. it's um, a good time to really talk and find out what are their relationships with their family and mm -hmm. what are their worries and you know especially when it comes to buying a home that kind mm -hmm. of discharge planning is so important but I do feel there's a gap in outreach from hospital to home there was still a void and there was still a gap and outreach is so important mm -hmm. in that transition time whether you look like you're well and you're walking and you're fine or not you've just had a major life-changing experience that you know it is not a normal situation it's mm. okay to say there's nothing normal about that mm. i couldn't yeah. agree more i could not agree more and you know my experience that goes back to icu and we had an outreach service from icu where yeah. people would discharge from and i'm not overly sure that it's that prominent in australia in my experience but we had this amazing outreach service whereby they would go from the ward uh, sorry from the icu to the ward yeah and we would kind of ease them into that we would check on them every day they would have our number you know they'd have the icu outreach team's number and then they'd be followed up when they're discharged home yeah. and there would be gaps filled in their knowledge from when yes. they were maybe sedated and yeah. um, we'd bring them back in to walk through like i mean you know that yeah. for me was such a great experience of having the patient at the center of their care yeah. and then really thinking about them afterwards and knowing that there are so many gaps that it is a life-changing event there are you know 50 people that come to the end of the bed every day and you know they, they're not necessarily answering all your questions or communicating well or taking the time to stop absolutely and yeah. remembering i think there's yeah. a lot of that time that if i wasn't sat there i had to retell that story quite a few times because she didn't have the memory of some of those things that were said to her at the most crucial time and then retelling that story over mm. and over depending on who you were seeing so it was supporting her and advocating for her to be able to do that at that time yeah and and i think you know we've talked about burnout and we've talked about you know those experiences of stressful situations so i think you know the impact of what we've been through during this time as much as the outcomes were positive it still happened mm -hmm. and i was still going to work every day and life was carrying on as normal and we didn't have our family supports around so it can take its toll later on that something you know that, that was a major event in your family it, it does creep up on you if you don't take the time to go through the emotional unpacking of that give yourself some time and some space and i'm very passionate about carers in the workforce and how we look after carers in the workforce and that word carer is is anyone whether that's your children you know whether that's your your mum your dad or you know whoever it could be in your life there's a lot of people who go home to take on a caring role when they leave yeah. work so they bring you know whatever is happening and, and juggling appointments and conversations and you know even relaying to family we were on the phone constantly relaying to the family because they're obviously caring for you so it's mm. a very exhausting time and that wasn't even a complex situation so i can only imagine and having worked with some of the other families on the young stroke project and met them all over the last couple of weeks being able to be in a room with lots of other families was actually really quite helpful for me too you know and just going yeah actually all of our situations were totally different but it felt nice just to meet other people and that might be the only time we do meet but um it, it's a helpful process i think for families not everybody wants it but for some it can be really 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 helpful and how nice to have the option 
it was nice to have the option yeah. to be able to say yes or no yeah and to be able to work through that and you know build a community make friends through that process yeah. with that shared experience because we know that people relate to that and and yeah. that that will help people move through their experiences that they've had absolutely it's a real privilege and, mm. and we certainly feel very privileged and i think it's it's wonderful to be able to put on the nursing experiences hat that i've had in that neuro space over the years because you, and also in the non-clinical roles that i've had there's every touch point of that clinical pathway that all stroke patients will mm. will go through and and i can make sense of both you know almost that whole pathway, but putting on different hats at different times. So being able to contribute to that is amazing and actually learn about things that I didn't even know were happening around Australia with some of the great research that's happening and improving outcomes and how we're going to improve things for rural and remote communities. I mean, that's a whole other space, mm -hmm. but there's some incredible work happening out there and a lot of dedicated clinicians and teams but um, still not enough funding, not yeah. enough staffing and still more resources mm. needed, like, like, like so many other areas of healthcare. Mm. Yeah, so, well, yeah. Scott Morrison, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, Fred. Well, it's, it's funny so because, well, this is something that I think Beth has also learned mm. as a next generation nurse. We were connected with our local member who was a parent at school and um, she has supported, she supported the fundraising. She supported um, a number of people in the community to share their lived experience to, yeah, try and bring about change in the health sector. So That's that right. was where I think politics and health and lived experience was definitely something that we both realize how that is important and if you can be that voice to bring about change mm. then why not be that voice even it. if you've got to be vulnerable and on camera yeah, or yeah, well, <laughs> whatever unfortunately yeah. that's where the growth lies doesn't it that's what they say the growth lies in the vulnerability and the curiosity and yeah. you know opening up and 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 what an inspiration i'm very excited to hear about beth's grad program and how <laughs> she moves forward and she could be talking to you liam as well <laughs> always that would help. be great um, yeah but, you know yeah what an amazing story and it that is just gonna go with her throughout her nursing career and just shape an amazing clinician you know from yeah. from that experience absolutely mm. so yeah we'll watch this space but it's exciting yeah. love watching the next generation oh, launch no. into oh, their no. career oh, no. it takes you back but it's exciting there's <laughs> a great world and experience and a big world out there to travel to so who knows so where much. she'll be do you know what so yeah. much and also create your own path like yeah. that's what i keep coming back to is you yeah. you don't have to follow you certainly haven't followed like a, you know, a linear path. No. How exciting, no, but how exciting, like I find that really, really exciting to think about that you can just create your own path, do what you want, yeah. um, explore different areas, follow the curiosity and yeah. say yes or no. Yeah, that yeah. didn't, no, that didn't uh, suit yeah. me and move on and take your experiences with you. I think that yeah. is an, an amazing learning from um, our chat today. I well, if <laughs> I feel we, like could. we could go on forever and the podcast editor might be like okay leave stop leave. We're, not, 
Well, hopefully I'm not sent anyone to sleep. But no, if anyone, yeah, if no. any of your listeners are listening and anything resonates or they want to reach out and connect and have a chat or they're thinking about a completely different, you know, move in their career, then I, I'd love a conversation anytime. And um, so yeah, it, it's always lovely to, to talk to someone and, and inspire them, I hope, to mm. take the plunge and know that anything's possible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Anything is possible, guys. You can do anything that you want to do <laughs> and, and draw upon great leaders and mentors like yourself. Where oh, can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn. I love a bit of networking and love connecting with people and finding out about what they're doing. And it's a great way to learn about lots of different organizations. Mm. And that's obviously where we've connected as well. And, yeah. and finding some like-minded thinkers. And, you know, I might be of the, what do we call it? I'm a seasoned, oh, seasoned, <laughs> seasoned professional. nurse, <laughs> professional, <laughs> but you know, but that's a good thing because we have lots of really positive networks and you found, you know, lots of like-minded people to mm. have these conversations and discussions with. So yeah. even if if it's not me i might have a connection that i can mm. link you to so a lot of the younger generation aren't on linkedin but yeah i mean they change. can change <laughs> <laughs> you need to get on linkedin i keep telling yeah. you <laughs> yeah there's lots of articles and great publications so and resources and and people that want to help you get get a start and a foot on the ladder i think yeah. we're, we're all keen to help people find their beginning or, yeah. or transfer you know transfer and find new beginnings so yeah if i if i can help or support anyone liam tell them to reach out to you and you know if you're in more public spaces than me and then yeah feel free to connect them with me oh thank you that is if that involves any mentoring i love it yeah, love no, to mentor thank you so much that is very generous of you and you know that's what we need we need you know people like yourself to to offer your your experience your skills your knowledge to help us grow and develop so i might be in touch myself uh, <laughs> we, we, can have a chat offline. <laughs> we, we haven't stopped talking i can tell oh, no, it's been oh, such no. a pleasure thank no, you thank so you, much no, thank you so much it's been a pleasure and until next time so i'm sure we'll have to revisit this in the future <laughs> and do a follow-up episode but yeah, um, maybe i'm we will. truly truly grateful for everything you've shared tonight and I, for one, can't wait to listen and hear all of those nuggets of gold that I think are going to speak to a lot of people today. And thank Beth for sharing a story. And maybe and, we'll see if Beth wants to come on. And have I a chat. sure she um, would love to. And I amazing. share it all with her permission, I should say. And <laughs> we, she will talk about me equally in other spaces, I'm sure. <laughs> I, hopefully positive but she does sure talk about the family support but yeah ab absolutely and that's a very important part to all of this we're, we're doing this together but I share her voice um, and represent what she teaches me every day mm. and shares with me but it's all to make a difference and not 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 to yeah undo her privacy because that's very mm. important mm. Mm. yeah thank you so much for sharing thank you we'll leave it there for tonight um, until thanks, next Liam. time and thanks for listening time. guys thanks Nicola thank you so much for listening to the high performance nursing podcast please rate review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen I would love you to join my online community of high performance nurses Join us on Facebook at Liam Caswell or check out my website at liamcaswell.com. Until next time, I have been your host, Liam Caswell, and I am truly grateful for the opportunity to help you build your high-performance nursing career. Be kind to yourself and stay forever curious.